You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. My name is James Cleaver. I'm a covenant member of Connection Church and recently actually on staff here as a uh, church planning resident with the goal, if I haven't been able to talk to you before, my, our goal is to plant a church in the next year or two in Brookings uh, with a focus on the students of South Dakota State University. That's what God has really given us a passion for is, is being there when the great transitions in life happen, uh, when you arrive on a college campus and then when you leave a college campus to shepherd through those moments. Those are the, those, in, in my experience of working with students, those are just major transition periods that just rock people's lives. And so that is something that God has called us to do and to be a part of. Um, this morning, I get the amazing and wonderful opportunity to share with you a psalm. Uh, psalm 46, actually. Uh, this, is, this is the last psalm of the summer. So we typically go through the Psalms during the summer, and, and I, get, I get the last one. We'll jump back into Matthew, I believe, starting next week. Uh, so hopefully that you find it encouraging and, and bring hope to your heart this morning. So let's go ahead and open to that Psalm. Um, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone where you can find that quickly, there should be a blue paperback Bible in the, uh, the rack in the chair in front of you. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents usually in the front. It's divided into the Old and New Testament. Psalm is, is in the Old Testament, so that'd be in that first group of books that you will find there. Also, if you just kind of open the Bible to the middle, Psalm is usually kind of there. It's got 150 chapters, so it's, it's kind of bulky, easy to find. Um, the Bible, in general, just kind of a general framework, is a book made up of 66 books. All those 66 books tell the unified story of God's work in his people, or through his people, and in the earth. And Psalms is, is kind of, it's the songbook. That's the easiest way to say that. It is the songbook of the, of the Jewish people that you find. Um, and so in the middle of that is just all kinds of outpouring of praise and emotion and gratitude and really a lot of asking why and calling for justice and all these kind of things that if you've been with us, you've walked through and heard a wide variety of, of what the Psalms is all about, the songbook is all about. So as we read a psalm, this psalm specifically, or song, this morning, let's tune our ears to hear what it is about. This song is communicating that even though that we are surrounded by troubles, chaos, and turmoil, the grace, life, and peace flow from the presence of God to us because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, not ultimately for us, but for his own glory and honor. So that's the thrust of where we're going this morning. So let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 46, and we'll just start with that. It starts with a a sentence, essentially, kind of a, uh, this is who it's by, this is the tune that it's from, and and why it is there. So it says, to the choir master, the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song, right? So that's kind of the heading there. And then he jumps right in. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river 
whose streams make glad the city of the Lord, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. Selah. Or nope, I'm ahead of myself. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come before, come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Many of these words may be familiar to you. There have been hymns and other songs that have used these words or been based on these words. If you uh, grew up in church tradition, I think there's a Martin Luther song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that maybe you have heard in the past. I believe recently a group called Shane and Shane has kind of modernized that somewhat. Uh, also, lines from it have been you know, slapped on coffee mugs or inspirational posters or social media posts. Um, what we want to do this morning is really unpack what this song is teaching us about God. What we find is the song is communicating that in the midst of a deadly world, we find refuge in true life flowing from the person and work of Jesus to his glory and honor. We said that earlier, but I just want to bring that back. That is where this song is going. This is the core point that it is driving home. A first observation, though, how it's driving that home uh, is that it's given to us in three parts. There's three sections or stanzas broken up by that word selah to, that it is given to us in. Uh, and that can be a guide for how we are looking at this song. So the first section teaches us that there is cosmic trouble in the world but God is present with us. The second section teaches us that grace, life, peace, and security flow only from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And finally, the third section calls us to come and see the wonderful works of God that are ultimately for his own glory and honor. And again, when we tie all these things together, we see that in the midst of a deadly world, we find refuge and life flowing from the person and work of Jesus Christ to his own glory and honor. So let's, let's dig into this. Let, this. let's let this song teach us. The first thing, hopefully, that you've noticed, outside of the fact that it's in three stanzas or three sections, is that each of those sections has, has a line or two lines, a couplet of lines that are either identical or very similar, right? So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Then you move to verse 7 that says, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And then verse 11 is the same thing again. It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So um, we have three verses that are essentially repeating the same statement, also strategically breaking the song into three parts. When we study scripture, this is a huge sign that says, hey, this is important. 
look at this. Take notice of this. Why is it there? So when we, we say something over and over again in Scripture, it's there for a reason and a purpose. So these three verses all link security with the presence of God. That's what these things are doing. So let's look at 7 and 11 first. It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. So here, presence is equated with with us, right? With us equals presence, and it's coupled with supremacy, the Lord of hosts. In the second line, it says fortress is coupled with this personal connection that has deep historical and covenantal roots in the people of Israel when it says God of Jacob, meaning I am the same God that has been with you from the beginning. And it has all this history built into it so that they know that this isn't just some God that has come from nowhere. It is the God that generations have worshiped and who has been a part of our people for generations. Um, Maybe another much less poetic way to restate this would be to say, the Lord of all is here with us, and the God that has connected himself to our people in a covenantal way is the one who defends us. Verse 1 is similar. We can draw parallels between fortress from verse 7 to refuge and strength, right? Those, those kind of serve the same purpose there. And between is with us in verse 7 11 to very present help in verse 1. This set of two lines in verse 1 is at the beginning of the section set at the end, like in 7.11, to set the theme of the song. We're not going to spend a lot of time doing like this nerding out on word pairs. Don't worry, that's kind of the extent of what we're doing this morning on that. But it's important because it is repetition. And we really want to understand what the author is communicating. And what he is communicating is that no matter what the circumstance, God doesn't change in who he is and he doesn't change in his position to us. That's what he's saying. The rhythm of this song is saying God doesn't change. And he doesn't change in the way he takes care of us and loves us and is in relationship with us. He is always near to his people. And he is always in control, a fortress, a refuge, and our strength. Also notice this. In all three of these refrains, no conditions are put on the people of God to gain his presence. God is present, period. That's it. God is present. He doesn't say, I will be your refuge and strength if. It is, he is our refuge and strength. We do not earn his presence. He is not present because we are worth it. We're simply just not worth it. God is present anyway. He is present because he chooses to be present. This is immensely important. It means that God's continued presence is not dependent on what we do. God's continued presence with his people is guaranteed. And this is a guarantee with no fine print, no exclusion clause, no loopholes, no expiration date. It's guaranteed. He is with us. When God brings you into his presence, he keeps you there. No exceptions. This is something that we'll actually come back to in the second section of this song. Uh, he, He delves into that even more. Um, So then the next question we have to ask is, well, why is God's presence even important? Verse 2 and 3 answer that. Uh, The first thing to note, actually, before we get into 2 and 3, is back up in verse 1. He starts to hint at this a little bit. We are told that God is our help in trouble, not from trouble. That's an important difference, right? Because if I look around my life, and I'm sure if you look around your life, and especially if you're following Jesus, you go, well, 
you know, I feel the presence of God, but that's not stopping trouble. You know, I look around, and, and if God is here, why, why is this going on? God says, I'm the help in trouble, not from trouble. Trouble is an insured thing. We live a troubled existence in a troubled world. This isn't like small or insignificant trouble. Take a look at how this is described in 2 and 3. It says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This description could be written in reference to some specific event, but really it has more to do with like a universal and cosmic scope. In other words, the writer here isn't necessarily describing a specific event or even a specific category of events. He is providing a description of what we all know to be true. The world we live in is full of chaos, turmoil, brokenness, and evil. Like, that's just the world we live in. And if you look around, if you read the news, if you just open your eyes, we see that, right? And the description itself echoes back to Genesis chapter 1. In the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the earth is described as formless and empty. That's a chaotic description, right? It's formless and empty, and the Spirit of God hovered over the depths, right? Because the earth itself was in chaos. It also echoes the great flood that God sent uh, as judgment, and he, and he saved for himself Noah and Noah's family. Um, it also describes uh, many things broadly throughout the Bible. Turbulent waters are used as a metaphor for chaos and evil in a world that is in rebellion against God, in rebellion against the reign and rule of the perfect God. We even see this in the New Testament where we find Jesus calming the stormy and deadly sea that has the disciples cowering in the boat. If we dig into the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, the way it speaks about turbulent waters, it is generally talking about two things. First, it is speaking about the effects of humanities, that would be us, general state of rebellion against God's rule and reign on the earth. That's, that's one of the ways that it is using that, that term turbulent waters. See, nature is not the enemy. And society as like some other thing is not the problem. It is the systematic and consistent rebellion against God throughout history of us, individually and collectively. That's what results in evil, suffering, and death. Second, it speaks of the judgment of God against individuals, groups, or all of humanity. The great flood would be an example of this, where turbulent waters is used to describe God's judgment against humanity. This trouble, then, isn't simply bad circumstances, though it does include those. It is the cosmic condition of chaos, turmoil, evil, and judgment. In other words, to help fill the picture in your imagination, the writer is using turbulent waters to describe things like war, genocide, famine, floods, human trafficking, plague, disease, tyrants, injustice, and all other similar things that have popped into your head as I start reading that list, right? That is what he is using turbulent waters to describe. Notice, though, the, what, the, what the writer isn't doing here. He isn't trying to answer why. He isn't asking why our world is this way. 
He isn't asking why this evil is allowed to exist. Those questions are actually asked and answered in other songs, right? We've gone through some of those this summer. Here, he is just simply acknowledging that condition of the world that we find ourselves in. He is acknowledging that great suffering, death, and evil surrounds us. Yet what is his declaration? It is we will not fear. Now, that's where we ask why. And it is because of the presence of God. Now let's step into this metaphor a second. In the New Testament, this metaphor becomes a reality, but also a real historical metaphor. That's a beautiful thing about Scripture is that God is using real events and real history to also be metaphors for what He is doing in a spiritual and cosmic sense. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, and then again in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 32, we find Jesus in a boat with His disciples, and He is calming two separate storms. In the second account, Jesus actually walks across the storm you see in a boat to be with his disciples, then calms the storm. So we must ask ourselves, why do these two storms occur in the New Testament? Well, there's obviously definitely a climate explanation for them, right? The Sea of Galilee where these took place was known for its fierce and unpredictable seas. But There's something more going on here. See, God controls nature, and he controls history, and he inspired the writers of these books, specifically this one, Matthew, to write what he did and include accounts and not others. So why? Because we find the embodied presence of God calming the turbulent waters, which is pointing to how the incarnate or embodied presence of God on earth will bring peace between God and humanity, as well as dispel the effects of rebellion, namely suffering and death, through his work of dying in our place on the cross and coming back to life. Don't miss this. Yeah, Take, lean into what's going on here. We, like the writer of this song, can confidently state that we do not fear the evil in this world in which we live, nor do we fear the judgment of God because we are welcomed into the presence of God by the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the gospel, the good news for you and me. How are the turbulent waters, the result of our rebellion, dispelled? They're dispelled not because we built a bigger or a better boat or through a better trained crew. It is through Jesus supernaturally calming them. The disciples in Matthew's account could have rowed to the best of their ability and the utmost of their strength, and they would have died. They didn't die because they stopped trying to do it themselves, and they cried out to the only one who could save them by doing what they could not do, bring peace and life. And that is what the songwriter is trying to communicate. He actually, he actually like reinforces this, in the next section of verses. Let's read 4 through 7 right quick. Well, not right quick, but let's read verses 4 through 7. Just lean into this imagery right here. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob 
is our fortress. In these verses, the scene shifts slightly. And we realize that the writer is actually describing the world from a specific vantage point within the city of God. That's a beautiful thing. In this city, instead of roaring, crashing, and foamy seas, we are next to the quiet river, quiet streams. Just lean into the poetic beauty of that. I'm not a poet, but even I get that, right? The author has just described chaotic, dangerous, and uncontrollable open water. Now he brings us to the quiet river that brings to mind animals drinking, children playing, soft, spongy grass, you know, that's nice and green that you find by this beautiful pastoral scene of a bubbling river, right? This is a wonderful scene of peace and tranquility. Ultimately, The imagery here is that this river stands in opposition to the turbulent seas. It stands as life-giving instead of life-taking. It brings gladness instead of expected fear. With this imagery, the writer is not inventing something new. Just like with turbulent waters, he he is drawing from the history of his people. It, a, a, a quiet, bubbling river is already part of the worship scene of the Jewish people, already part of the consciousness from which they think. Um, think back in Genesis, right away, once again, what did God create in the Garden of Eden where the presence of God was? He created a river that then fed the earth as it broke into four more rivers, right? This is the presence of God, peace and life flowing from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden and to the rest of the world to the promised land where you have the Jordan River and and other mentions of rivers there, to Psalms, other Psalms like Psalm 23 that says, He leads me beside still waters. To descriptions found elsewhere in the Old Testament, specifically as you kind of get toward the back of the Old Testament, there's prophets that are continually talking about the city or land of God, and there's usually a river there. And all the way to the New Testament where Jesus declares himself to be the living water. In many of these references to a quiet river, it is flowing from the throne or person of God to symbolize the boundless and sustaining grace, life, and blessing to be found in the presence of God. Another parallel but contrasting description is that instead of the earth giving way and the mountains trembling and being thrown into the sea, we are now in the city of God that will not be moved. And then the last verse, well, verse 6 says the writer describing nations raging against the city, but the reality is that those very kingdoms are consumed by the word of God. These three images teach us that in the presence of God, there is life flowing from him, unshakable confidence, unmatched power, and perfect justice. As the writer is thinking on these images and writing them down, he lives in a specific time and place in what we call redemptive history, God's acts among his people. He understands the importance of the presence of God, but he doesn't yet see how it has been brought to its ultimate fulfillment. What we know, this side of the New Testament, that Jesus is the living water, that Jesus is the stream that brings us life and grace and peace. It is from the person and work of Jesus that all life flows. See, we need water to sustain us physically, 
But more importantly, we are sustained by the work of Jesus. Like I said, that is the gospel. The perfect life Jesus lived in our place, his death in our place, and his resurrection to triumph over death. These are what give us life and sustain us. And, and by life, what I mean is like true life. I'm not talking about physical life or a beating heart and breathing lungs. I'm not even talking about having a life free of pain and suffering or trouble. What I'm talking about is peace, hope, joy, because we have assurance of the approval of God and eternity in his presence where the fullness of joy is found. It is through this work done by Jesus on our behalf that we are given new hearts and new minds. Again, this isn't a biological reality. You don't get new organs. (laughs) Jesus changes our desires. He changes the way we think. He changes what we're living for, and he changes how we view life. Sometimes these changes happen faster than others, but the more we understand of who God is, the more we see ourselves needing Jesus. That's how the good news works. We see how Jesus has radically changed our position with God, how much he has given us, and how much he will continue to change us to be more like him. Notice in all of this, just as we said earlier, the life flowing ultimately from the person and work of Jesus is a river. It's not a well. The river flows from Jesus to us. We are not trying to figure out what buckets to use. In other words, the water is right there. Take it. Drink it. There is nothing you can do to get better water or to get more water or to deserve the water. You don't need to lower a bucket and toil away at drawing water through morality or religious acts. It is there, right there, flowing to you. Take it, drink it, let go of trying to do life your way and just follow Jesus. Jesus also fulfills the other images that the writer is describing there. Not only is Jesus the living water bringing life, he is also the unshakable foundation that cannot be moved. You see, since we have done nothing to earn our right to be in the presence of God, since it was purchased for us and given to us by Jesus, we cannot do anything to lose our place in the presence of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, 31-39. Bree read that in the call to worship, right? We'll actually just flip there. I, I love it, so we're going to flip there and read it again because you can't read the Bible too much. It says, this is what Paul is saying, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the question. Who is against us is God is for us. 
God is the only one that has right, the right to condemn us, yet it is God who sent Jesus to die for us. The only one who can condemn us is the one who made our forgiveness possible. The righteousness of Christ was credited to us when we didn't deserve it. Why would we think that all of a sudden we need to start deserving it? That's not how this works. The righteousness of Jesus is credited to us so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. And he continues to see Jesus' righteousness even if we struggle with rebellion against him. See, Jesus looked at us, and out of his grace, he said, this one's mine. I'm paying for this one's wickedness and rebellion with my own righteousness. And Jesus' righteousness is enough. It is limitless. Jesus did not say, I give you four gallons of my righteousness. You can paint over so many square feet of sin. Good luck with that. Use it wisely. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus stands in our place. These are radically different things. So there's no one left to condemn, which leaves us praising Jesus with Paul shouting, who will separate us? Nothing. Nothing will. And and that's the attitude of the praise that the writer of the Psalms actually just breaks into in the third section, right? Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The writer calls us to come and see what God has done. This is a transition in the song. This section is unlike the first two. It is more looking forward, more prophetic. It is much more a response to what we have seen God doing in the previous stanzas and what we know that God will continue doing. The wonderful thing is we can already see more of what God has done than the writer could. The writer looks forward with hope to to the coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the things that he is writing about. And we see that. We have seen everything be fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. But there is an already but not yet component, right? When I look around, I still see suffering in the world. But I know that Jesus has defeated suffering and death finally. It just it hasn't taken place in time and space yet that you and I live. I know that Jesus' ultimate victory is assured that it will take place. He's already bought and paid for peace on earth by destroying death. But that hasn't already been fulfilled in time and space that we experience yet. But we know that he will. God is king, and we look forward to the day when he will complete the work of his kingdom. And our response is worship. Don't miss verse 10, though. Like, I want to draw your attention to verse 10. This this is maybe the most important verse of this whole song. And here's what's important about verse 10. God speaks, right? There's There's quotations there. And it says, be still and know that I am God. These words give us the why, the why that all of this is taking place. You see, when we read anything in the Bible, we should always be asking why. Why is it here? Why is God doing what he is doing? And the ultimate answer is always the same. God works for his own glory. God has done all this for us, but it is not ultimately for us. 
He does it so that he is exalted, so that he is honored, so that we praise him, so that we be still, and that we know that he is God. That's why God does this. That's why God saves us. Not because I'm so special that God wanted me. It's because God wanted me because of who he is, and that is an amazing thing. And you know what? This may sound like selfish, but it's not. This isn't wrong. It's only wrong if it isn't justified. And in God's case, it's 100% justified. God deserves all worship, all glory, all honor from all peoples that have ever lived and even the earth itself. So that brings us to, to the end, to two responses. Great. That's an amazing song. Now what? Our two responses are this. Go. Go drink from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And praise God for what he has done and what he will continue to do with us and through us and for us. Those are our responses. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much that you are God. Help us just to be still and know that. Help us to see how exalted you are. Help us to see your work. Help us to see your glory. Help us to see what you have done for us, the love and grace that you have poured out. Help us to, to just bask in your presence and in your grace. Help us to drink from your stream instead of trying to dig a well on our own effort, God. Help us to praise you in everything. In name I pray. Amen.